And I want to obviously talk about Yom Kippur. That's uh, coming to us really soon. It's on the doorstep uh, this upcoming Tuesday night. And I want to talk a little bit about how we can make our Yom Kippur that much more fantastic and meaningful. Uh, so like all Jewish holidays, we want to start off with the history uh, of the day. You know, what was the very first Yom Kippur? We talked a few weeks ago about Rosh Hashanah. The first Rosh Hashanah is the uh, emergence of Adam and the beginning of kind of the purpose, the fulfillment of the purpose uh, of, of the universe. Uh, Yom Kippur starts a little bit later in, in, in our history, and it starts actually with the golden calf. As we know, Moses and the Jewish people are encamped at Mount Sinai. They get the Ten Commandments. They have this tremendously transcendental experience. They're all at the mountain, and they all have prophecy, and it's fantastic. And then Moses disappears into the mountain for 40 days, and as we all know, chaos ensued. Right? He comes back down. He sees the people worshiping the golden calf. He takes the tablets. He smashes the tablets. He takes the, ta- he takes the calf. He grinds up the calf into a fine dust, puts it in the water, gives the people to drink. 3,000 people die. It's a disaster. And God tells Moses, I'm going to destroy your people. We'll start from scratch. That's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm fed up with the people. We're going to start from scratch. And you know what? You'll be the leader of the new nation. And Moses starts his process of praying and interceding upon behalf of the Jewish people. And he tells God, listen, uh, you, if, 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 a, if a chair that doesn't have three, that has three legs can't stand, a chair with one leg is going to stand. He's referring to the legs that uphold our nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers. And if that can't stand, if they don't have the uh, enduring continuity, well, what's it going to be if I'm going to be the only leader, the only the founder of this new nation? And he says, well, what's Egypt going to say? And he intercedes and he prays and he prays. He goes up the mountain again. He comes back down. God says, okay, fine, make me a second set of tablets. He made a second set of tablets. He goes up a third time. He comes back 40 days later on Yom Kippur. So it's actually 120 days from when he, uh, the Mount Sinai experience, Yom Kippur, three times Moses goes up to the mountain for 40 days. Finally, Yom Kippur, God says, Salachti Kivarecha. I have forgiven the Jewish people. I have atoned for the Jewish people as per your request. Thus, this day, Yom Kippur, is forever enshrined in the Jewish calendar or in, in the world's calendar as the day where God is most likely to forgive us. The day where atonement is easy. It's, it's a readily available, it's possible, it's right there. Come take it. And I want to stress here just the kind of the grandeur or the, the, um, the degree of, of, of atonement that was, uh, that was, that's possible. The sin of the golden calf is a sin that's so severe that it really justified and warranted the Jewish people to be destroyed. A whole nation. Now, how many people committed the sin? Well, we see Moses grinds up the tablet, grinds up the golden calf, puts it in the water. Everyone drinks from it. 3,000 people die. So 3,000 people participate in the sin. 3,000, only the men. Women women didn't participate in it. Uh, It's kind of trend that we see, that the men are the ones who are most likely to sin. Okay, that's for another, for another day. <laughs> uh, but uh, apparently things haven't changed. Okay. Um, so 3,000 men sin out of 600,000 men. So half a percent of the Jewish people sin. Right? And, that's, and if you take the women, we assume there's a commensurate amount of women, even though usually there's more women, as there is in America today. 
Uh, apparently men die in things called war and bungee jumping. Uh, so for whatever reason, there's more women out there. And so if you assume there's the same amount of women, we're dealing with uh, a quarter of 1%, a f- tiny fraction of the Jewish people sinned. And what the sin exactly was, we had a long discussion about that in the past here. It's not so clear, but it's, uh, it's something to do with idolatry, or at least it's, it, 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 you know, it has the, you know, it has the, the feel or, of, of, of idolatry. A quarter percent of Jews sin, and God says, I want to destroy the whole people. What does that sound like? It's a, it's a, it, it's a, well, yeah, that's also true. I don't want to mention that, but that's also, incidentally, those are not the biological Jews, or not the biological, not the Jews that are descendants of the, of the Abrahamic family. We're told that those are the Jews that joined. But either way, once they joined, they're part of the people. So it's, so it's, but still, it's a tiny fraction. What do we, what does it tell us when a quarter of a percent, one out of every 400 people, right, participates in a sin, and the whole nation is liable to be destroyed. That tells us that we're dealing with huh? collective guilt, collective punishment. And that's something very interesting that sees that suddenly we're, we're you know, we're, we left Egypt now. Suddenly we're a nation. And as a nation, there's positive, uh, there's benefits and there's drawbacks. The benefits is that, you, you know, there's benefits of being part of the group and there are drawbacks of being part of the group. And one of the drawbacks is that we suffer along with the group. It means we, ha- we, we participate in the ups and downs of the group. If the group is doing well, well, then that raises all boats. And if the Jewish people are being judged collectively in a negative sense, that's going to affect everyone, even people that didn't participate. God is holding us to a higher standard? Collect or... or once we're bound as a nation, it's as if we're one body. Thus, if your leg hurts, right, it doesn't just, it's not isolated to your leg, your whole life is miserable, right? You know, if you have a bad back, you know, well, just your back hurts. Not every, you should be fine, just your back, right? No, it affects your whole body. In fact, we're told in the Talmud, this is the Jerusalem Talmud, that uh, when, someone does, when someone does revenge, someone takes revenge, so uh, what's that like? So the Talmud describes revenge as a, uh, a fellow who is using a sickle to harvest grain. And he takes a sickle and he's cutting the grain, he's cutting the grain, and by mistake he has his left hand there, and, oh, terribly, cut off his left hand. So now he has a severed limb on the, on the ground, and the severed limb is so upset, so it picks up the sickle and cuts off the other hand. That's what the Talmud says. And what it's essentially describing is that once we are an enti- a single entity in, as a nation, right, we're like one body. And therefore, when, you know, it's senseless, obviously, you know, for you to hurt yourself even more than you got hurt, you know, originally. Uh, but that idea of, of, of being bound as a nation, right, that is going to allow for such kind of treatment. And obviously it's a good question. There's a philosophical problems with this as well, you know. If I, didn't, if I didn't sin, if I didn't participate, why should I be destroyed? Well, you're part of the, you're part of the collective, Well, if you look at all our prayers, you mentioned prayers, Betty. All the prayers are in plural, are almost all, are, are, are in, the, in the plurality. All our prayers are praying for the nation. You know? uh, and we'll see the flip side of this, by the way, in, 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 in a short bit. 
Yes. So that's, that's another important point, that, it, that maybe, well, some people did. I don't know if they were try, all trained because they were forgotten. Yeah, so that's, an, that's another point that the Talmud points out uh, in, this is the Babylonian Talmud. The Talmud uh, points out in the book of Shabbos 55a. I'm just showing off what I know. You can give us any number. Yeah, I, that's what I figured. Like, no, but this is what happens to be true. The Talmud points out that... <laughs> That when someone when someone sees someone else behaving in a way that demands that they reprimand them or try to direct them towards the right behavior and they don't, well then they get they, they get a slice of the action, so to speak. And in fact, there's a mitzvah in the Torah that says, you have to uh, uh, castigate or reprimand your fellow uh, because like we said, if we're one nation, you have to make sure that everyone, all the Jewish people, are going to behave in a way that is, you know, upstanding. So if I don't, if I see something and I don't say something, well, then I too am, uh, I have a slice of this, of this sin. So that's, that, 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 that would also be true. So maybe it's not such, yeah, but the question is like this. Is the sin of not stopping someone from sinning at warranty, does that warrant us being all destroyed? Maybe not. I would argue it's a less severe sin. Maybe. But I think that's a good point. So maybe it's not entirely collective punishment. Uh, but I would assume that not, not everyone was able to stop them. You know? <clears throat> yes? Uh, on the flip side of corporate punishment for sin, on the flip side, if a small percentage is doing things that earn blessings, does the corporate yeah, so we even saw this, and we see this um, even in, um, amongst other nations. We see, uh, we remember the story with Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is trying to intercede on behalf of those people, and he says, well, maybe you'll find 50 righteous people. Oh, no, 50. What about 40? What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? He's, you know, and because what well, would have, and God says, no, 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 this place is full of sinners. Oh, what if they did find 10 or 20, or, right? Then the, that, though the few would have saved the many. So, yes, there is the, there is the flip side of that as well. Either way, we see that on this holiday, on the holiday of Yom Kippur, and I call it a holiday, a lot of people think of it as a day of mourning, which is one of the misconceptions we are going to dispel today. Uh, this holiday, it's a day where atonement is possible to such a degree that even sins that justify the destruction of an entire nation can be cleansed and, as, and, 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 and atoned for. Another point. What else happens in Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur, as we read on Rosh Hashanah, we read again Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day where our judgment for the upcoming year is sealed. Now, ain't that convenient? Isn't it convenient that on the day where God is most merciful and most likely to give forgiveness and most likely to just wave aside our sins, that is the same exact day where we're being judged, and our, our, our verdict is being, is being finalized. It's one of the wonderful miracles of all time. That specifically on the day where God is most likely to forgive us, that's the day where he also finishes our judgment. It's like, imagine, imagine if you were, God forbid, on trial of, for some, I don't know, whatever it may be. Isn't it not, like, can you imagine what a benefit it would be that, like, the jury of your peers that are judging, like, 
you were able to put something in their drink that make them very, very, very happy. You put shrooms, I mean, you give them shrooms, and they're all in great moods, and like they can't possibly think of putting someone behind bars. Isn't that convenient? That's what we have. On Yom Kippur is a day where God is most merciful. That's the day. And that's the, also the day where we finalize our, uh, our, uh, our judgment. So that's already brought down in all the Jewish sources. It's, it's why, well, we read it in the prayer, right? Yeah, yeah, but how we do sources not that. Well, the, say, say it to Yes. Yeah. Now, I want to I I dig, dig a little deeper. So, so I think if anyone thought, and I'm sure a lot of people do think, uh, before they walked in here, that Yom Kippur is a day of mourning and just solemn day of, of being miserable because he can't eat or drink, well then we see that, that that's not. This is a very happy day. And it's very different than the other fast days that we mourn the destruction of the temple the ninth day of, uh, day of mourning. This is the in, exact opposite reason why we're fasting. We'll get to that a little, a little bit later. I want to drill down a little deeper. So Yom Kippur is the day where we're able to get um, atoned for more than any other day. How does that work? I want to just analyze it on a mechanical or technical level. Uh, so we find a verse in Leviticus. I'll read, the, read you the verse. On this day, it's talking about Yom Kippur. This is Leviticus 16.30. On this day, God will forgive us to purify us from all our sins. Close to God, we shall become pure. I'll say that again. It's saying that on Yom Kippur. God's going to atone for all our sins and going to purify us and we'll become close to God. Oh, we are close to God. So it's describing that this day is different uh, in, you know, in the capacity that most days we're distant from God, and today we're close to God. Uh, how does that work? Why in Yom Kippur, what about Yom Kippur makes it that we're close to God, and why the rest of the year are we distant from God? So, we know that human, as humans, we're composed of body and soul. We're fused, half body, half soul. And if you were to isolate our soul, it would look, look like an angel. If you were to isolate our body, our instinct, it's very, very similar to an animal. And that's what we are as humans. We have half this, half that. Now, how it works is one of the great mysteries. How are such opposites able to come together in the human? I mean, that's one of the great questions of how. But we're asking God how he did it. And that's, you know, we don't have a lot of answers as how God did things. Uh, but that, that's what a human is. If you were to isolate the soul, the soul would be very close to God, very even similar to God. Man's created the image of God. Well, you see, we see men. Men in their bodies, they're, they're not very, dis- very distant you know, from animals. Yet man's soul is like God, and man's body is like an animal. And because our body is such a uh, is such the is so much the primary force of our life, and uh, because our perception, our consciousness, is so distant from God, therefore we could say that we're, we're we are indeed distant from God. Yet on Yom Kippur, this all changes. Now, how does this change? So we find very interestingly in the Talmud as follows. Um, and I know once I say what the Talmud says, I'll have to dispel some other, other misconceptions. So we'll do that. <laughs> uh, so the Talmud says as follows. Talmud says 
that the gematria, everyone knows what the term gematria means? Gematria means where a Hebrew word has a numerical value. And that's something to teach you a little bit about the meaning of that word. Uh, because as we know, Hebrew is, is called the holy language, and therefore the, what the word actually means is demonstrated in, what, in how the word is pronounced and how the word is written. So uh, the Talmud says that the word hasatan, the satan, uh, is gematria 364. Now what does the satan mean? The satan is a code name for the force, the power that tries to push us away from God. Now, it's important, this is, the, this is the, this deception I wanted to spell. It's not like this power has its own power, has any independent power, right? That's the Christian idea, you know? That, that, that's, that's anathema in Judaism, right? God is the only one that has the powers. However, but in order to make life interesting, right, in order to make a, a life meaningful and purposeful, it has to be that there's resistance. If man faces no resistance in their quest, well then, their Accomplishments are valueless because there was no resistance to get there. So the barrier, the obstacles that stand in the way of us achieving our destiny, of us connecting to the Almighty, is called the Satan. Another name for it is Yetzirah. A third name is Malachamaves. These names that we've all heard, these words that we've heard, uh, these, uh, these represent the things that are the barriers between us and God. And says the Talmud that the word hasatan, the satan, this barrier that stands between us and God, is, 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 is Gematria 364, because there's one day that it has no influence. And what day is that? Yom Kippur. So if we could say as follows. Um, if you were in Houston, Texas, and your brother that you love really dearly was in Miami, and it's the 1500s. You would have no way of contacting him. You can't send a telegram even. You can't, right? You're very, you're very distant. Now, if your brother was in the International Space Station with no methods of communication, all the more so. Right? You're very distant. You might be thinking about your brother. You might, you might, you might be worrying about your brother. But you really have no way of, of connecting, no interface between you and your brother. Now imagine your brother was 10 feet away from you. 10 feet. But between you two is 10 feet of reinforced steel and concrete. For all practical purposes, your brother could be on the moon. You have no way of connecting with him. However, there's one difference between these two cases. The difference is, is that if you are to temporarily remove and lift the barrier, well, then you're right there. Yes, man is distant from God. But why? Why is man distant from God? We have a soul. The soul's like the angel. That's, you know, the Talmud even says, crazy, mind-blowing, that man's soul is similar to God. That's just mind-blowing. You can't even think about, like, what does that even mean? Like, we, 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 we kind of think we know what our soul is. We have no idea what our soul is. It's similar to God. Yet... There's this massive obstacle, 10 feet of reinforced steel and concrete. We're so distant from God. And what happens to Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur is 364. There's one day where this power does not wield the same influence upon us. It's lifted. Voila, we're close to God. That's Yom Kippur. And that's how all these opportunities that we're talking about, 
the opportunity to just clean your slate, full atonement, right? To actually progress at breakneck speed in your in, in your spiritual journey. That is what we can do on Yom Kippur. Because we're we're right there. We're, we don't we don't need to go through the normal process of trying to chip holes. Right, trying to carve out Andy Dufresne. Well, shout out. Okay. Right, right, between us and the Almighty. The whole year, it's just this terrible struggle. It's like we, our whole life was we're facing such tremendous resistance. We know we want to like poke little holes in the resistance and try to do something and try to call out to the Almighty, even though the, you know our voice gets garbled. That's what we're trying to do the whole year. Just almost a fruitless effort. Comes along your Kipper and you. Every opportunity is right there. All you got to do is just take it. All you have to do is just scoop it up. We say that, you know, growth and change and progress, spiritual progress is like a ladder. What it's like. And therefore, we always say during the year, and say, oh, you know, don't jump too many runs at a time. You can't step, step your steps. You've got to go step after step, slowly but surely. Slow and steady wins the race. All the platitudes that we're all familiar with. But is that in actuality, or is that our perception? Either way, that's the reality. I don't know if it's because our perception, or I think it might be, it might be both. It's our, it's our perception, and therefore it's our actuality. Maybe it's possible. Uh, clearly, in Jewish sources, it's abundantly clear that you can't do it. You can't just change over. You can't. Well, there may be some exceptions to that. You know, there's the Talmud that talks about the guy who was able to acquire his world in one instant. So there are exceptions. I would agree there are some exceptions, but those people all die, by the way, right away. <laughs> uh, the people that it said, uh, the three examples the Talmud says. Uh, we're not going to make it. We're not going to finish it all in time. The three examples that the Talmud says of Yesh Kone Olam B'Shal Achas that it's possible to acquire your world in one hour, those people all died. Right? One of them, I'll give you these three amazing stories. One of them was this righteous Gentile who, um, who I don't remember the exact details of the stories. The, all three of them are within seven pages of each other in the Talmud, in Avodah Zarah. One's in 10, one's in 17, one's in 18. So he has eight pages. Um, and it says a story about this righteous Gentile who was sticking up for the Jewish people, and because I don't remember exactly the details. Either way, they, they said, okay, we're going to execute you, and then some guy strained him as he's being watched at the execution chamber, saying, oh, you stuck up for the Jewish people, but you're not even Jewish yourself. So he quickly gave himself a circumcision, and he's like, oh, I paid my taxes, and they executed him, and this booming voice came to hear everyone, oh, this guy is welcome to Lama Ba. Even though in, in one second, you know, one instant, one episode, Story number one. Story number two is this uh, uh, connoisseur of women of ill repute uh, whose uh, name was Eliezer ben Judai, and he proclaimed that there's not a single prostitute that he hasn't uh, uh, patronized. And then he found out there's this one prostitute at the other end of the world, and he has to cross seven rivers, and she takes a whole bag of coins as her payment, and he went there, and, uh, well... Read the story, the details. But either way, she told him, you'll never return. And he's like, oh, this one, he got so shaken up. And he's like, oh, well, I want to return, I want to return. And he sat down between two mountains, the whole story, and he put his head between his knees and he cried and cried and cried, and he died. And a booming voice came out. You could acquire your world in one instant. Right? That's the third, the second episode. The third episode is uh, during the Hadrianic persecutions, they were executing the great rabbis uh, left, right, and center, 
So there was one rabbi named Rabbi ben Tardion, and he, what they did was they wrapped him up in a Torah scroll, and they lit him on fire, him and the Torah scroll, and then they took a wool, and they doused it in water and put it in his heart to prevent him from dying, so to kind of prolong his suffering. And then as, and as he's there, he sees all the letters flying up in the air, all the letters leaving the Torah scroll, and he's like consoled by the fact that uh, that uh, that he's he's as if it's firing with the Torah, and then the executioner is like, "Well, uh, if I take this away, and if I uh, if I minimize your suffering, will I uh, will I be granted a portion of the come? He says, "Yes," and he he raised the fire and he jumped in the fire with him, and he also died. And once again, booming voice, there's someone who can acquire his, in, his world in one instant. And in all three instances, by the way, Rabbi Judah the Prince uh, cried when he heard the story. So yes, I would say there are some exceptions. But either way, it seems like all three of them, the guy died in, uh, right afterwards. Uh, so typically, uh, the process of growth and change... By the way, read those stories. Very, very, very interesting. I skipped out some important details uh, just for... Expediency. Um, so, uh, so yes, I, I would I, w- I would agree that that it is possible, uh, even though the typical process is is slow growth, and you want to achieve your world, so to speak, step after step. Yom Kippur, those rules are scrapped. I don't want someone coming to me in your Kippur and saying, uh, well, we could do a little bit, we grow a little bit, step by step, slow. Not not in Yom Kippur. In Yom Kippur, we're all the hair, right? You try to grab as much as you can on these precious 24 hours. <clears throat> and I, um, I just, going back to our example, imagine someone, uh, God forbid, was in prison, life without parole. Miserable. And your whole, your whole existence is essentially trying to figure out schemes and ways to escape. That's really what you're trying to do there the whole time. And then this one day a year, we hear all the guards leave, all the doors are unlocked. There's no one around. All the... Uh, uh, watchtowers are empty, and you never can walk out. And what does the guy do? The guy says, you know what? Uh, I'm going to do my regular regimen of push-ups in my cell, and then I'll, I'll go to the yard, you know, and then I'll just do whatever I do, I do every day. Biggest fool in the world, right? Biggest fool in the world. This is your, this is your golden opportunity. It's all there. Everything that you've been striving for, everything that you've been yearning and hoping for, it's right there. The barriers are removed. And what do you say? Uh, you know what? I'm really hungry. Let me go down to the uh, chow hall. Oh, there's no one there. I mean, eat as much as I can, right? So you take, you know, you take all the mush and you, you sit down and just, you know, let's... You're the fool. You're, you're the biggest fool in the world. This is the day where there's so much opportunity and you're sitting down and wasting time with eating and drinking and not leaving. What is this, this topic? I'm, I'm leaning into another point here, but there's this, this, this two points here. Is that yes, it's tremendous opportunity. It's all there, and it's such a it's such a wonderful day. That by the way, in 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 Jewish sources, the name of Yom Kippur is called Yoma, which means the day. You never say which day it is. It's just the day. You, you say the day. I was like, well, which day is this? Is that Thanksgiving? <laughs> which which is the New Year's? No, it's Yom Kippur. It's the day. It's, it's, it's the day that's different than every other day. And, but, um, go ahead. Rabbi, it, excuse me, in the Torah, 
It's specifically called, is it not the Day of Atonement, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's not the day, it's the Day of Atonement. True, I said in Jewish literature, that's right. Like, for so example, the book... Jewish sources... A Jewish literature. I'm saying that. The, yeah, okay. I was uh, without actually for the, the the name of the book of Talmud that talks about Yom Kippur is called Yoma, right. as opposed to the book that talks about Rosh Hashanah talks, is called Rosh Hashanah, and the one that talks about Sukkot is called Sukkot, and the one that talks about Pesach is called Pesach, right? So they're clearly giving you a message. This is the day. True. Um, There's a rabbi named Ben Yoma. Uh, well, there's one Ben Ben Zoma as well, right? <laughs> um, so. This day is this opportunity. Fantastic. Now, what if someone says, I don't want to participate? Or what if someone does nothing about it? Yes, it's an opportunity, but if you do nothing about it, you gain nothing. If you say, I'm not going to do anything, I'm not going to participate, I'm going to opt out of Yom Kippur, well, then, yes, you know, the opportunity is there for everyone, but if you don't seize the moment, if you don't grasp and just scoop up everything that you can, well then, the day comes and goes, and you miss that out on a wonderful opportunity. And, of course, I think we get, we get, um, we get calloused by the fact that it comes every year. And we're like, oh, your kipper's here. Oh, no, man, it's the toughest day of the year. Right? Unfortunately, that's what we think. But uh, Rabbi Israel Salanter famously said, he's like, if your kipper came once every 70 years, then people would wish each other. Like, that would be like the, you know... Uh, feel good, stay strong. Everyone would say, may you merit to see Yom Kippur. It comes every year, we take it for granted. But we, once we learn a little bit about what the day is all about, it's like, wow. How, how are we going to stand the sidelines and not participate? You know? And a lot of times we think, you know, oh man, my stomach is grumbling. You know? If we really realized what an opportunity it is, we couldn't possibly even think about eating. It's like the guy who says, I'm, I'm going to spend the time in the prison uh, chow hall because I'm really, really hungry. Ooh, and this uh, tastes so good. <laughs> right? Y- yes. Is it easy to fast for 26 hours? No, it's not easy. No one said it's, no one said it's, it's going to be easy. Uh, but how could you lose focus on the power of the day and the opportunity that it affords you? That's number one. Number two. What we said earlier, what separates man from angel? <laughs> well, that's true. Okay, but that's a function of the fact that we have the soul and the body. Right? If you look at a soul alone, then our soul alone well, looks very similar to an angel. And Yom Kippur, we're told that the powers of our body, of our Yetzirah, the Satan, those things are temporarily removed. So on this day, spiritually, if you look at us, if you examine us on, a, on the spiritual scale, you'll see something that looks very similar to an angel. Well, as you mentioned, Andrea, angels don't need to eat. Well, we don't need to eat either. Well, yes, of course, we still have a body, and therefore it's still, we still feel hunger pains. Uh, but on a spiritual sense, if you were to examine us spiritually, I don't know how you would do that, but if you could do that, you would find something that looks very similar to an angel. And therefore... Right? Angels don't eat, we don't eat. Angels, right? We think of angels as all white. We dress in white. And we mentioned uh, previously, there's a prayer that only angels say. And that's why when we say it, we say it in an undertone. We whisper it, kind of to go under the radar. Comes on your kipper, we scream it out loud. And we're not scared. We're like angels today. You know? So, 
while other fast days are days where typically they're days they're marked uh, a, a morning on Yom Kippur. It's not about morning at all. It's about who we are in this day. On this day, where you know, there's one way to look at it. This is an opportunity. We don't want to waste our time with any trivialities aside from accomplishing as much, as much as we can. Or if you examine us, we look like an angel. Well, an angel doesn't need to eat. We don't need to eat either. Now they'll say, Rabbi, okay, you know, okay, we don't need to eat. Fine, that's all. That's all nice. Well, we actually do. You know, we're hungry. Uh, we're thirsty. Pro tip. Okay, this is the pro tip, guys. Pro tip section. If you drink now, on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, you're not going to be thirsty on Wednesday. If you do what I used to do and say, I'll just wait the last minute, and then I'll guzzle, right, just gallons and gallons and gallons of water, you know what that does? It makes really long lines for the bathroom by Kol Nidre. That's what it does. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> Right? Your, your body uh, turns into a funnel. <laughs> I remember, like, I, I, don't think, I remember thinking, like, I don't think I've ever heard a whole Kolonidre. I, I don't. Just like every time, Kolonidre is what? It's 20 minutes? 30 minutes? How long is Kolonidre? And, you know, but if you had just finished just consuming a uh, vat of, <laughs> of beverages, you're not going to make it. But if you drink now, you get slowly integrated, you just get hydrated. There you go. Um, then, uh, <laughs> okay, so once we're on the topic of fasting, let's talk a little more about fasting. So, there's a, uh, a principle uh, in, in, in all of Judaism, one of the big principles, is the idea of lefum tsara agra, which is Aramaic for as per the pain is the reward. Commensurate to the pain is the reward. And the idea being as follows. Not every mitzvah is created equal. The way the Almighty looks at a mitzvah is the mitzvah is as valuable as how difficult it was to, to, uh, to fulfill. So if for one person it's very, very easy to put on their tefillin, and the other person it's exceedingly difficult, while they both did the same thing, for one of them it was like, oh yeah, that's a mitzvah, it's really nice to put on tefillin, it's a mitzvah from the Torah. But you really wouldn't have considered to not put it on, right? So then how valuable is it really? As opposed to the other person who had a struggle, who had to overcome, right? who, who would have entertained the possibility of not putting it on, well, for that person, it's a tremendous mitzvah. So now, what happens in Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur, we're told, okay, no, we didn't know during 26 hours, 25 hours, whatever. 25 hours and 14 minutes, we're counting down. And then it's like 3 in the afternoon, and we're really feeling the pain. But it's a mitzvah in the Torah. And we're doing a mitzvah in pain. And it gets a little later, and we're doing it, it's even more pain. How valuable is that mitzvah? It's such a valuable mitzvah on the day where we need mitzvahs more than any other day. So, like, instead of, instead of in, in a weird way, I want to tell you guys, instead of being uh, calculating how much time we have left, or counting the pages like I used to do, you know. We need to get to 482, and we're at, we're at 171. You know, just do the math. <laughs> and instead of doing that, um, instead of doing that and trying to figure out how do we end it, like take joy in the fact that we're able to suffer a little bit for a mitzvah. 
How valuable is mitzvah? The Talmud again says, Echad betzar, one mitzvah in pain is worth, mea shalom is worth a hundred without pain. So we could do a mitzvah every day for a hundred days, and it's easy. That's equal to one mitzvah in pain. And as to the degree of the pain, right, that's the degree of the, of the reward, of the value of that mitzvah. So we have an opportunity in Kippur, on the day where we need the merits more than any other day, we have the opportunity to get so much just because we're fasting. So I, I think in a weird way we could say that it's a tremendous, one of the another tremendous benefit that we have that we're able to fast. And it's, it's, it is a mitzvah to withhold from, from, um, from, from, from uh, that form of pleasure on Yom Kippur because that gives us another opportunity to uh, accomplish uh, uh, all, all the more on Yom Kippur. Now, um, there are five things that are prohibited to do on Yom Kippur. Uh, to eat and drink, uh, marital intimacy, right? intercourse, uh, to wear leather um, shoes, uh, to wash and to uh, put ointments and smear creams on your body. That's the. But what about shoes? I mean, so everyone wears Crocs where I go to. Everyone wears Crocs or like you can wear rubber, you can wear uh, synthetic materials, just not leather. Most comfortable not? thing in the world. Which is it's pretty awesome, by the way. With those, <laughs> I was like, Rabbi. So you're not you're not supposed to take a bath on your campus? That's right. What about brush? Just for the sake of everyone you're going to encounter that day, I just wake up in the morning. And just don't know if, I, if you don't consume the water, you spit it all back out. Is that safe to do? That's all right. Oh, My wife thanks you my for that answer. Would have loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Not have to brush your teeth. Don't brush. Well, what did they do at that time? Did they brush teeth at that time, or uh, did they just everybody kind of endured each other? Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. There's um, there's another great great episode of the Talmud. Um, listen to the story, guys. So there's um, a whole sea of students, and they're all studying by the rabbi. And the way the way it works is that there's um, there's uh, so the rabbi's sitting there, and all the students are on the floor. And everyone's studying. There's hundreds and hundreds of students there, and then there's um, uh, this one guy, and he has and he and he has bad breath. And the rabbi says. Who is the one who ate the garlic? Get up and get out of here. That's what the rabbi tells him. So then I was like, oh, what to do? So there's one rabbi, the venerated sage, who was, who was a student here. He gets up and he walks out. And everyone else gets up and they walk out. And the, uh, the idea being, where everyone knew that it wasn't this guy who had the bad breath, but he wanted a cover up for the guy that would have to leave. And therefore, he said, okay, I'm going to get up and everyone will think it's me. And I was like, oh, I'll do the same. And everyone got up and, everyone got up and now we need to not embarrass that uh, individual. So I guess that was an issue back in the day as well. Um, which is, it's, it's funny because it's, 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 it's a theme that we see again and again. We see, like, um, we read a few weeks ago in the Parsha when they uh, are amassing an army to go join, to, to, go, to go into war. So they say, who is the man who has engaged the woman but not, but not married her? Or who is the man who has built a house but hasn't established it? Who is the one who has, who has planted a vineyard but hasn't actually reaped the harvest? Get up and leave. 
And then it says, who is the man who is fearful of any sins that they have? And all the commentaries point out that the real, real, the real soldiers that we don't want are the ones that are the sinners. But if we just said, who are the sinners, get up and leave, everyone will say, oh, well, okay, I'll leave, but it's so embarrassing. But they say, well, maybe this guy actually built the house and didn't move in, or maybe, maybe this person is engaged and hasn't married. It's a way to kind of not embarrass the people that really, you know. Either way, so to answer your question, I guess that was a problem. And I guess for the babies, no makeup. Uh, yes, that's right. So you can put makeup on beforehand. Um, before you empty that would be fine. Um, uh, I don't know. I'm not a woman, so I'll have to defer. <laughs> I've uh, never, I somehow survived uh, 28 and change years uh, without ever wearing makeup, so. Yes, so he said, he said, it's, it's not, it's, I don't know, it's not, it's not an, it's, a, you know, that's, it's not an easy thing. <laughs> no, I'm sure that there are rabbis that get that question from women, I mean, you know, and, and I guess that's the answer, you put it on before, before you. This is something I was curious about because technically, um, if you're going to truly be observant of Shabbat, you can't put makeup on on Shabbat because you can't scrape the powders. Um, and from what I understand, there are very specific types and brands of makeup um, that Orthodox women will buy that you can put on in advance and then you spray it with a setting spray and then you sleep on it and just kind of patch it up the next morning. And so, I mean, if that's something you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're kind of more specialized, and they've got different applicators. Like it's more loose powders that you put on, so it takes out some of the scraping aspect of lifting makeup off the palette. Well, there you go. And so it can be done. I haven't tried it. Because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of makeup is oil based. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. What, what, what does the rationale behind it? Yeah, yeah. I like setting the timer. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, or like kosher for Passover, all the kosher for Passover, or the commercialization of all the kosher foods. Um, well, the rationale for these things. Yes, Vitaly, there's a question over there as well. I'll get to you in a second. Um, so um, the rationale is that this is a day that we uh, withhold from pleasure. And we'll get to that in a second. And yes, for us, for us today, it's hard to imagine why everything is commercialized and the pleasure that we get from leather shoes is minimal. But back in the day, to have leather shoes was a sign of, of you know, of royalty, of, of real indulgence. And therefore, you know, if you were in these, you know, metal, this wooden collage that you scrape by yourself, right, it's not so comfortable. Uh, but if you had leather shoes, you know, there were specialized shoemakers and all that, you know, it was really, you know, it was, it was really crafted and tailored and really beautiful and really comfortable, Compared to whatever else you would wear, you, you don't so do that in your paper. It's part of self denial, I guess. Kind yeah, of. we'll get to that in a second. So we'll get, get to that in a second. You cannot wear like gold and. Uh, yeah, gold so there's a tr- there's a custom that that women don't adorn themselves with their with their, with their uh, uh, most uh, most uh, ostentatious uh, jewelry. I, you know, I think. Okay, a little uh, rant here coming. But uh, unfortunately, <laughs> Yom Kippur is, well, I guess it's fortunately, Yom Kippur is the day where most synagogues see the most attendance. Uh, and I wonder if, uh, you know, people were, on Yom Kippur specifically dress up for the occasion, ironically, uh, as opposed to dress down. I have a quick question. This is probably 
Everyone, men and, and women. Men and women. That's right. That's right. Um, now I, I want to just just maybe make this a little a little bit more connect a little bit more to what we said earlier. Um, if this is this day where we're soul first and body is just there secondary, perhaps the fact that we're refraining from all these bodily pleasures is is to demonstrate that and to show that we're kind of disavowing ourselves from our body and focusing on the soul. Uh, if we are to indulge in the body, well, then you know, we're kind of bringing up this barrier again that we don't want to be present. We want it to, you know, we want to kind of uh, to submit our body in this day. We want it to be a soul first day. So it's not just random that like, oh, let's be miserable on the happiest day of the year. It's, it's the happiest day of the year because it's the most soulful day of the year, the most opportunity, opportunity for our soul in that, in that year. Therefore, the body is relegated to uh, a more minor status. Sleep, you could sleep, no problem. In fact, there's there's one person who cannot sleep on Yom Kippur, and who might that be? That might be the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. Uh, the high priest, I'll get this in a second as well. The high priest Yom Kippur wouldn't sleep the whole time as well, because uh, the high we're worried if he's uh, sleeping, there may be a nocturnal seminal emission that would invalidate his uh, ability to uh, to um, to uh, to perform the acts uh, needed for Yom Kippur. That's why he would, he would stay up the whole night. And the Talmud, the Talmud describes what they would do. They would take off his shoe to me. What if he gets sleepy? So they read him interesting things and they snap their fingers like this. <laughs> and and they take his they take his uh, his barefoot feet and put him on the cold marble floors. And they talk to him and they engage him and he reads and they read and they, and they wait till sundown to you know to to to, 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 uh, uh, to sunrise and he starts all working with the fury. Um, all, all the uh, activities needed on, on Yom Kippur. I was just thinking um, about the things like no makeup and no leather shoes and things like that. Back in those days, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, having leather shoes and being able to have makeup, that would indicate maybe a person was neurotic. Okay. So on that day, it seems like it's an equalizer. Everybody, you don't know who's guilty. You don't know before. It seems like everybody's put on a sense mm-hmm. of letter. Maybe. 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 Well, to some extent, that's <clears throat> what you said a few minutes ago. I mean, that leather connotes royalty, you know, and, and so. Yeah, but I, I, I think that 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 that's 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 a true idea. I, I think probably the more simple understanding is just that it's about the body. All those things are directed at the body, and that's the day we want to submit the body. And because leather is animal, so therefore. Mm. Maybe that's but interesting. Then, would that mean you shouldn't wear wool? No, wool is fine. Oh, okay. But wool is fine. You, that, that particular thing on Yom Kippur has no connection to the prohibition against linen and wool together. Nothing to do with it. Just one day, one day a year that uh, these five things are prohibited. Okay. Isn't sleeping pleasurable, like taking a nap? Yeah. Well, we can also look at we look at sleeping as being. Um, sleeping is also an opportunity. If you, if Yom Kippur is a very taxing day, you know, and and if you're going to fast, it's uh, a very good thing if you can take a nap in the afternoon to kind of, you know, when you're fasting, you take a nap, you feel better when you wake up. Um, somehow, sleep gives you that nourishment that uh, that you need. So yes, that's that's uh, that's okay. Uh, so long as you know we're not the Kohen Gadol, and I don't think we, any of us are. So uh, cool insight.
This, uh, this, and this will dovetail nicely with what we mentioned earlier. So there's this uh, really, I mentioned this last year, so if you've heard it last year, please forgive me repeating it. Um, so we find a really startling uh, piece of Talmud in the book of Yoma, the book of Yom Kippur, where it says that someone who sees semen on Yom Kippur, right, he should worry that he's going to die the whole year. But if he doesn't die, he should know for sure that he is uh, someone who has a portion of the world to come. And when you, uh, if you were to... He see, whether he sees his own or somebody else's, it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, well... <laughs> so, um... I'm born and bred here. <laughs> so, uh, typically, the, I just gave a translation, but um, the word, that's what it means, Aurora carries, someone who sees uh, semen. Uh, however... It typically means his own. It's a colloquialism for uh, uh, for him seeing his own. Uh, now, obviously, this 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 is obviously. If you just read that, you would say this is the last page of the Book of Yoma. The editors didn't complete their job. That's what you would say if you just read that. Like, doesn't he, like someone sees him, he's going to die. If he doesn't die, he's, then he's righteous. Uh, and uh, the explanation is that what is this day? This day is a day where the entire nation is withholding, refraining, abstaining from bodily pleasure. And this guy says, not me. Not me. Well, okay, you are not being part of the, the community? You don't want to be judged as part of the community? You don't want to participate with what the community does? Well, okay, then you're on your own. Well, if you're on your own, you're not judged as part of the community. You don't have that benefit of being part of the collective, well, then, therefore, you have to worry. You'll die the whole year. The whole year you have to worry that you'll die. But if you didn't die, well, then means you were judged on your own merit and you were found meritorious and righteous. Well, then you should know that you're a righteous person. And this is the flip side of... of, of this is the benefit, so to speak, of being part of the collective. Where there's the negative, like the golden calf story, and there's the positive. And... The positive, I'll tell you what the positive is. I know for sure I can guarantee every one of you guys that the Jewish nation right, will survive 5776. And that's where we will be around. Guaranteed. No matter what the nuclear uh, uh, bombs or whatever nonsense is happening in Iran, or none of, that, none of that's going to uh, in any way uh, threaten the viability of our nation. Why? Because that's, that's, that's the way it's been. That's the way, it, it, that's the way God tells us, predicting the Torah. And uh, our whole history it has been a nonstop effort by adversaries to try to destroy our nation, and they have never succeeded. And they never will succeed. Thus, we are sure that the Jewish nation will come out, uh, uh, will, be, uh, will be acquitted on the holiday. We want to do everything we can to join that nation, to join the Jewish people. Thus, when we say we're going to participate in what everyone else is doing, that makes it that we are part of the collective. We're not removing ourselves from, uh, from the Jewish nation. We're participating alongside with what everyone else is doing. And I'll tell you even more so. I'll just bring this here full circle. Well, 
full half circle, full semicircle. <laughs> There's no greater historical anomaly than the Jewish people. If you look at our history, we have all the conditions of a nation that is on the precipice of being extinct. And that's, it's been in, in constant, uh, that, you know, that has been constant for thousands of years. Uh, we've always been very small. We haven't always been uh, united. We haven't always had our own land. We've been scattered. And we have nonstop uh, uh, aggression directed at us. If you were to just look at the conditions of the Jewish people and say, is this nation going to survive a thousand years or not? You would say, okay, well, let's examine it. You know, small people, scattered, hated, right, marginalized in every way. There's no way they're going to last. It's not going to happen. And yet we survive. What's the secret? How come we could do it and no one else could do it? We're so clever. The answer in Jewish philosophy is Yom Kippur. No, why would that be? So the Talmud tells us that every nation has a quota of sins before God exacts retribution. So whatever that amount may be, the nation, remember the collective, right, they have a certain amount of sins before God does anything. So the Romans and the great empires of yesteryear, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the, the Greeks and the, the Ptolemites and the Seleucids and all the great nations that have existed, right? They have a certain amount of sins that the Almighty allows. Once they reach a certain point and no return, it's that retribution. So the, the, Torah, the Torah talks about that. The sin of the Amorites did not reach its full fulfillment. That's right. That's right. There you go. So Therefore, once their, once their quota is filled, so to speak, they're gone. Jewish nation, we also have a quota. We also have some number of sins that we cannot reach uh, or else we'll be destroyed. What happens? Every Yom Kippur, back to zero. Every Yom Kippur, God says, oh, on this day, I'm going to atone you for all your sins. You become pure, close to God. Okay, well, what happens? We start, we go back to zero. And throughout the year, you know, unfortunately, this number of sins pile up and we creep up, creep closer, we get closer. Oh, Yom Kippur comes. Hmm. But we'll hmm. never get to that threshold. Because we? every year we have a refresh button. We have that uh, that extra life in the game, right? Every year you could hit the, hit the, hit the ceiling? And, uh, I guess it's theoretically possible, but, you know, but it would take more than a year's worth of sins, apparently. You know? Uh, but, one, but we never get to that point, thanks to Yom Kippur. Oh, it's rigged, yeah. It's a rigged system. Uh, so the, the Chinese, <laughs> well, the Chinese, that's a great example. Chinese, they don't have um, the conditions that would necessarily warrant their extinction. It's an example of, of, of a nation that survived for thousands of years because they've been isolated. And they're so big, so every other nation gets swallowed up by them. Yeah, but there there are some it's, you know, the Arabs, I guess, um, uh, as well. Maybe even the Indians, um, but they don't have the same conditions that we have. Yet we have survived. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about about what we're supposed to do on this day. So we see what a powerful day it is, what opportunity it is, why we fast. 
what do we need to do in Yom Kippur? Well, what's the prayers all about? What's the, what's the themes of the day? You know, what, are the, what are the mitzvahs that we're supposed to do on this day? How do we maximize and utilize this tremendous opportunity that we're granted every year? Uh, so it's about repentance. That's what it's all about, guys. Uh, and with regards to repentance, uh, we have to um, learn a little bit about how exactly repentance works and what, what does it do for us. Uh, so we find in the Talmud uh, a statement uh, talks about uh, seven things that were created before the world was created. Uh, and item number one on the list is Torah. As we know, we always say Torah is the blueprint <laughs> for the world. Bless you. And, uh, and therefore, Torah preceded the world. And item number two is repentance. And the question is, okay, why does repentance need to precede the world? Why can it be that repentance created, I don't know, maybe when the Torah was given, or when the first Yom Kippur was given, where God finally said, I forgive, or why does it have to be that it comes before the world? Uh, and I think if you look at that whole list, those are items that do not fall into the categories, into the rules, into the rigid restrictions of our universe. Therefore, they're not bound by the same laws. They have to precede it. They're supernatural. Well, let me explain what I mean here. What happens when someone does something? Right? You do any action. Right? You throw a baseball through a window, smash a window. Is there any way you could possibly undo that? No way. You can buy a new window. You could try to patch it together. But there's no way to undo it. Right? The, that window will forever be smashed. That is the world we live in. That's what we live in. Right. Repentance breaks all those rules. What happens? Someone sins, and then they repent. And they repent. What does that do? That makes as if they never did it. <clears throat> they never sinned. The Talmud goes as far as to say that if someone sins out of love of God, those sins are transformed into mitzvahs, into positive actions. But that is obviously not planned by the same rules. We don't live in such a world where you can time travel and change the past. The past, and even if you fix the past, even if you fix that window, you'll still see the cracks. And even if you suture up that wound, you'll still see the scar. That's the world we live in. Give me an example of a sin that you would do out of love for God. What well, a sin that you would do out of love for God? Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, no. What I, what, I, what, I, what I said was that if you repent out of love for God. Uh, Thomas says, if you repent out of fear of God, well, then your sins are made as if they were, your, your egregious, wanton sins are made as if they were mistakes. So, not so bad. But if you repent out of love of God, then your sins are made into mitzvahs. That's what I meant. That's just on this day? Or, or? That's every day. That's every day. That's every day. However, this day is most apt for what it. What would be example of no, that, that's what Dan said. That's that, I, I, what I, what I, maybe I didn't say clearly, or maybe I misspoke. My latter is most, more likely. It's repenting out of love of God. Yeah. So we see that there's different kinds of repentance, which is a good question. What does that mean? But either way, when we repent, there's no scar. It's as if the action never happened. It's as if 
the activity never happens. It's almost like time travel. Well, why can't every sin you have any day be re you just say you're repenting out of love of God? You could. Absolutely you could. So Repentance is a mitzvah every day. There's a mitzvah every day to repent. And as Betty always says, we should repent every night before we go to sleep. Right? Yes. So there's a mitzvah to repent all the time. However, the time where we have to repent and we cannot push it off any longer, D-Day for repenting is, is, uh, is, is Yom Kippur. And repentance is baked into the prayer. You look at the prayer book, Hashem, Nebuchadnezzar, right? All that. What's that? That's repentance. And we and say that. You tap their heart. We do it 10 times over Yom Kippur. We say al chait. We say 44 al chaits times 10. 440 times we say we sin with this sin, with that sin, with the other sin. The whole, the whole prayer, look at the prayers. The five prayers of Yom Kippur, all about repentance. Because this is the day where repentance is a lot easier as well. Remember, because God is much more uh, apt to forgive us. So while normal repentance might we might have to do a Herculean effort to actually, you know, stamp out an activity of sin that we did in the past, Yom Kippur, minimal effort goes a really long way. Now, how does that work? How, how do I get rid of an action I did in the past? How, how does that work? Give us a little, little deeper insight here into what is actually going on over here. So, I sinned, and then I repent. Let's talk about exactly how you repent. But what happens? I repented. What, is, what am I telling God? Right? What story am I telling? What I'm saying to God is, listen, I sinned. True. However, I repented. So if I were to be presented with the same opportunity to sin right now, would I sin? No. I repented. Okay. So judge me. Don't judge that me. Right? We could change. We have the opportunity to change. That, 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 that's the free will that someone mentioned earlier. That's the dynamic nature of, of humanity. So therefore, there was a previous iteration of me that sinned, and now there's a current iteration of me that wouldn't sin. So why would you judge the previous me? Judge me now, right? You've got to judge me now. Who am I now? I'm now someone that wouldn't sin? Okay, so then look at me now. We were scrapping the previous me. That's why Maimonides even tells us, is when someone and I'm not advising this to anyone here, but when someone is a complete, someone does complete repentance, they should change their name. Then why would you change your name? You know, I'll have to get you a new name tag. <laughs> uh, Rabbi, we repented of your Kippur, and my name is now, right? My Maimonides? My Maimonides writes that, yeah. <laughs> in the guide for the perplexity? No, in the laws of repentance. Ah, okay. And he says, because you're trying to show, listen, I am really a different person. I'm a different person. Right? The previous me sinned, and that person is gone. I repented. I'm a new person. So who cares about what that person did? It's like what your neighbor did or what, what someone at the end of the world did. It's, it's, not, it's not relevant to current discussion. Now, what happens when someone sins against his fellow? No, someone sins against his fellow. Well, then they have to ask forgiveness from, from, from the person that you wronged. Says the Talmud, if someone asks you for forgiveness and you forgive them, God will forgive you. Now, what's implied by that? That if you don't forgive your fellow, the God won't forgive you. Then why not? What does that do? God's like saying, oh, if you don't, right, if you're not nice to him, I won't be nice to him. What does that mean? Is that how God works? 
How come if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you? Well, the answer is like this. Let's just bake in the modality that we have now acquired. Your fellow, someone does really something really bad to you. It's really egregious, something really nasty. Someone mistreats you, someone cheats you out of business, someone says something really not nice to you in front of other people. Someone does something really bad to you. You destroys your reputation. Right, and you you in your heart, you you really feel anger and pain and you really don't like that person. And and then they come to you and say, forgive me. You know, and they're genuine, they're sincere. And you say, no, I ain't forgiving you. That was too bad what you did. What are you essentially saying? You're essentially saying that this is the same person that did something bad to me, right? You did something so bad for me, I can't forgive you. You don't obviously believe in the fact that people could change. Because if people could change, well, this is a different person. This person wouldn't say something nasty or do something nasty to me. So then you would forgive them. But if you're not willing to accept this paradigm that people could change, and therefore the person that repents is someone different than the person that sinned previously... Well, then you come to God and say, oh, God, forgive me. Well, what's your rationale for that? Well, I'm a different person. Oh, so you do believe that people can change? Well, which one is it? If you don't believe that others can change, and therefore the people that repent are different than the people that sin, then God says, okay, well, how do you ask forgiveness from God? You're also the same person that sinned. You also have that scar. You also have that broken window. Well, okay, then you can't be granted forgiveness. Look, you broke the window. But let's say... Somebody does something bad to you, and they come and say, well, I'm sorry. Well, and, you know, it's like, all right, I'm sorry. And then they go on their way, and they feel good because whatever. But there's no there's no real change that you're seeing. It's just this, this person has been, oh, I'm sorry, about ten times so over the past pressure, month or whatever. You know, like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I have a little grandson. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then Does it minutes again. later, he says the same. Well, saying you're sorry is not repentance. Yeah, true. Cause, so I, 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 would, I would say I agree with you and I disagree with you. I'll say what I mean here. Um, yeah, for sure you're right. That's not sincere. And I would say if someone's not sincere, you don't need to forgive them. But are we really sincere when we come to God and ask him for forgiveness? I don't know, man, because we asked forgiveness last year. What happened the day after the Yom Kippur? <laughs> which, which one of which iteration of me came raging back? So it's a great, so I agree with you, but it's a great merit if someone is able to just imagine that this person changed, you know, and like do the work for someone and say, oh, you really are a changed person. Help them along the way. Because that means that when God looks at you, and even though your confession is really sincere, right? You're doing the Al-Khaits and you're doing the Ashana Baganu, but are you really thinking about changing? Are you really trying to change yourself? Maybe yes, and that's great. You know, but we get the same standard of treatment from God as we give to others. But is there any requirement to make good what you did wrong, to replace the window as part of your repentance, instead of just saying, well, I'm sorry, you know, yeah, so, listen, you don't have to forgive if someone owes you money or something like that. Um, and obviously that person ought to be as genuine and sincere as possible uh, when they come and ask for forgiveness. Uh, but your job when someone is approaching you for forgiveness is to be as merciful as possible because, remember, you want God to be merciful for you as well. And the way you treat someone else is the way you'll be treated by God. And I have known other people do this, that I'll forgive people 
I forgive them, you know, and that way I can let go of whatever anger or resentment I have. It's right. And well, that's also a good, it's a, it's a good idea because you gain nothing by harboring the ill will, right? You, you know, they just they just have a permanent domain in your in your mind, permanent real estate for, for free. They're squatters of, of your of your mind. Uh, and why afford them that uh, real estate that could be used for other things? But also, there's been a tradition, um, literally for centuries, uh, in Jewish communities to, on the eve of Yom Kippur, to forgive everyone that has wronged them, even people that haven't even approached them. Uh, and uh, why? Because we're trying to get in the mode of being merciful and kind to others that have wronged for us, and what's that going to do on Yom Kippur for us? Fantastic things, you know. Uh, we want to be able to stretch our imagination and really convince ourselves and shoehorn their true repentance, um, and 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 therefore absolving ourselves of of, of the bad feeling that we've had towards them uh, on on the eve of Yom Kippur, on the beginning of Yom Kippur. And again, if you do it every evening, then it's not so hard. Right, <laughs> but it's that's not easy at all. It's not easy at all, and and it does take. Uh, it does take like some some con- convincing of yourself that like oh this is really a different person this person really changed, and even if you're not so sure and we're more cy- we're more likely to be cynical well they're just saying it, <laughs> and even if someone is sincere we're more likely to say yeah of course yeah of course they're sincere even right. Even if they don't do it with the utmost sincerity at least they can at least they have the thought to speak it you know it's something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would, I would, I would say like it, it, the way that I understand is to that. Uh, to not so much give the benefit of the doubt, but the opportunity for them to to find a way to rebuild their trust. Mm-hmm. And if you just kind of blow it off, like you're not really sorry, but you know, if they're being uh, not sincere, then sure. But if they if they are, I mean, the way I learn is to they, they at least accept that it's a possibility. Then that that is a and we want God to do that for us as right. well. Let me tell you, go ahead. Well, uh, traditionally, the, the tradition has been to ask forgiveness before you give birth. I know, but, uh, but wasn't the little... Well, the, the, the whole month is about self-reinvention and self-introspection and assessment and critique, and right? Yeah. Yes, go ahead. So before you approach Rosh Hashanah, you should be clean to, because the windows of heaven are open, right? That, that, did I miss something? Go ahead, go ahead. Yes? Okay, so now I'm doing the same thing. Well, I, I, I w- it's a good question. Um, what's the kind of interrelationship between Rosh Hashanah and Kippur? If you examine the prayer, and, and, and what's the repentance of Rosh Hashanah? I, I, I had this in my notes to speak about last week, or two weeks ago. I didn't speak about it in the end. Um, but the repentance of Rosh Hashanah, it's one of the ten days of repentance, yet we don't mention sin at all. Why? Because if we don't realize that God is the king, well, then his commandments mean nothing. So first we establish the dominion of God, and then, okay, once, the, once God's dominion has been established, okay, well, then his instructions are important and are binding or are meaningful. And thus, our, uh, you know, our not observance of that, well, that matters. And only once you accept that you have done something wrong can a path towards uh, uh, repentance actually be, be blazed. So yes, uh, so, so there is a, you know, and it's one of the great questions of all time is why the Rosh Hashanah came before Yom Kippur and not the other way around. 
Uh, it should have been the other way around because first you would atone for everything and then you then you'd be judged, right? Don't, don't you know? Don't you get your uh, get your uh, affairs in order and then you go to the trial? So that's one of the good questions. But but yes, so it, it's it's it is slightly different. When you spoke, I, I took notes. Go ahead. You said, on, on Rosh you said that it's oh, like a performance review, uh, like our anniversary day, mm -hmm. how we did. Mm -hmm. So that's when we really. I, I guess we begin in a lull, and then doesn't it just build and build and build? Oh yeah. And it's one. It's one process. It's like That's a right. set point. Mm -hmm. Where you said a lot more too. I could read all of it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Can I just circle back, segue back? Always. So those five prohibitions that you mentioned. Yes. They are not adhering to them is not a mitzvah. It's like a minimal necessary condition to get access or eligibility. Well, it's a mitzvah as well. But it's a mitzvah as well. Yeah. Says the Torah. So what if you do four out of five? Then? That's the, you that's the, you, you're doing. You well, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say that you can select your favorite, because. Um, <laughs> but I, I would. I would agree that whatever you're doing of the mitzvah is 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 partial mitzvah. But not doing all five, for instance. Right. It's it's not it's not valueless. Right. That's right. So you'll still be eligible. Well, Yom Kippur is a day where all the opportunities are there. Um, I, I'm not condoning in any way. Don't, don't, don't mistake this. Um, and we'll talk about repentance. What, what if someone does partial repentance? Well, that, that's also valuable. Everything's valuable in Yom Kippur. So, uh, one more very interesting point here before we get to how, how we actually repent. Um, so we mentioned that repentance, the way it works is that we're telling God, well, the person that sinned is that's someone else. And I'm a different person, so therefore, what's, what's irrelevant to me, what someone else did? We find in the law that there's some person, there's one individual that repentance does not work for. And that's someone who says, I'll sin, but I know that I'll repent in Yom Kippur. Someone says, ah, oh, repentance Yom Kippur is so readily available, it's so easy. I'll just sin, no problem, and then I'll repent in Yom Kippur. That person has, uh, has the repentance Yom Kippur does not work for that person. So typically we think of this guy is trying to gain the system, right? He's trying to find a loophole. Yeah, I was just planning, like, leaving, going, having a, a, a nice afternoon lunch, coming back, repenting for it, being in the clear, but that isn't. Right, that's, that's, that's what, uh, so, you know, people are like, oh, well, left game, that's, what, that's the way people, you know, that's why I always understood it, you know, till now, is that, hey, it's, you know, if, if someone is trying to gain the system, he can't gain the system. There's no loopholes. But now I think it's a lot deeper than that. When someone sins with intention to repent Yom Kippur, and then that same person actually repents Yom Kippur, is this a different person? No. Both of them, right, both the sinner and the repenter, are, say, I'm going to sin and I'm going to repent Yom Kippur. So there's no new person here. So that's why it's no, there's no repentance. It's not like someone should say, oh, I was a different person. No, you were the same person. You said you were going to repent Yom Kippur. Now you're repenting Yom Kippur. It's the same person. It's hmm? very difficult. It's obvious. What's obvious? Everybody is saying, "Okay, I can provide this this lay totally clean on Yom Kippur, so I can do some, whatever I want." Okay. Within reason, a lot of people would come to this very conclusion, and it's very difficult not to have the thought planted and planted in your mind. So, which pretty much means that 
I think um, I, 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 don't, I don't think that that's actually I, I don't think people are that cognizant of Yom Kippur when they're sinning uh, I think if they were at all thinking about Yom Kippur they probably wouldn't do it to begin with but either way the loophole, there's a loophole you can't just say I'm going to sin Yom Kippur will come and forgive so how do we repent um, so Imanis tells us there's four steps of tshuva, very simple Obviously, um, when someone wants to repent, they recognize that they, did, that, they, that they did something wrong. Well, how do they reinvent themselves? How do they change who they are? How do they make themselves someone new that's not going to sin? Very simple four steps. You stop sinning. You regret sinning. You commit to never sin again. And then you say, Vidu. Then you confess. And by the way, the confession is baked into the prayer. And we confess multiple times over the holiday. Simple. Regret doing it. Stop doing it. Commit to never doing it again. And you know what? You're a different person. And the degree at, uh, of which you actually feel this sincerely and genuinely, that's the degree of your repentance. If someone is genuinely committed to stop doing it, and genuinely committed to or really regrets and really realizes uh, what a mistake they made and sincerely commits to never doing it and, 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 and confesses to God by the way we don't, we don't confess to other people confesses to God with sincerity that person has completed their confession their repentance and you know what this is a different person and that sin is not mentioned there's no star even and you know what I'll tell you something really cool what happens if, you know, 18 minutes after they start sinning again. And we know Yom Kippur has happened many, many, many times already. And people, for the most part, revert back sometime after Yom Kippur. Well, what happens then? It's, it's normal uh, we're human, right? And it doesn't, it doesn't in any way infringe or encroach or lessen the impact of their of their of their repentance at the time, on Yom Kippur, right? When we were repentant, we were genuine, sincere, and we changed. And we changed. If sometime in the future our yetsarah, our blockade, our obstacles, right? They they once again took control of us. Okay, well that's a new sin. And, and that is different than what you said a few minutes ago about the person who sincerely re- who repents, but knows that he's going to revert back or intends to revert back and just repent. Well, well, that's not sincere. Exactly. That wouldn't be sincere. Uh, what I mentioned is the opposite. Someone who sins with intention of repenting. Right, okay. But You're saying, what about, what about if someone... Right, someone is not that situation. Well, yes, I think... Well, it's not, that's true. But I, I think that it, that's not necessarily... That doesn't necessarily mean that someone who repents with intention of sinning. I think someone who exactly. repents that's sincerely... And then something else came up, and you know the power and the effect and the day of Yom Kippur, that's not so present. And they they sinned. You know we're humans. Humans sin. That's what they do. Exactly. That's, yeah. That's no. I, I I was drawing a distinction between that example and the one a few minutes ago where the guy is 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 mm-hmm. is, is sinning and but he just figures out I'll, I'll get it you know uh, and so I'll 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 intentionally sin again because that's right. Yom Kippur I'll be a, well, that's not sincere. That wouldn't exactly. be right. So one is intentional, the other one is part of the learning process of repenting. Well, what would you say? I, 
let me say this point and see if this clears, clears it up for everyone. Um, and I think this is really, really relevant to really all of us. Um, what if someone has uh, lots and lots and lots of sins? What? Someone has lots and lots of sins. And it's really not, it's really not sincere to say, oh, I'll change this, I'll change that, I'll never get angry again the whole year, you know? And I'll do this and I'll do that. And, I do, and you go through all the areas of sin. <sighs> really? You're really going to change it all like that? And even in the back of your head, you're like, uh, I don't know if I can really maintain this that long. You know, so what is, and it's obviously very overwhelming to try to fix everything. You have, you have 24 hours, 26 hours to change your whole life. And you want to do it as sincerely as possible. Can you really even argue that such a process works? And such a process can be genuine and be sincere? I don't know. I think it's debatable. I think it's very unlikely. I think it makes more sense to focus, grab two things, focus on that. So, yeah, okay, but then, but then you want to repent for everything. How do you repent for everything if you're going to grab two things? I'll tell you guys something really cool. I just lost my notes here. Um, and that is that on Yom Kippur, the Almighty is going to look at us. The Almighty is able, very, very good at, at extrapolation. So if I were to actually change everything in my life, what would that actually look like? That would look like a process. And the process would start at a certain point, and then it would, it would gradually change. If I take the first step of my lifelong journey on Yom Kippur, and I commit myself to this process that is going to eventually conclude with me actually achieving the totality of my goals, then the Almighty is going to look right now as if the journey is completed and therefore will treat me as someone who is entirely cleansed from all my sins. Thus, my commitment to actually change does not have to be so exhaustive, right? It could be exhaustive. However, what I'm actually doing right now is the first step of the thousand-mile journey. But that commitment, right, when we assume that that could bring about everything that I'm trying to do and accomplish that day, that's a consider as if I accomplished it all today. So that's a way to, make, to practically approach this and say, oh, this is the day I want to cleanse myself entirely. 20, 26 hours to do it. I want to have freedom of all my sins. I want to forgive everyone. I want to be forgiven for everything. I want to start from a fresh slate. Well, I have you know, 89,000 things to do. Am I going to do all of them now? Or I'm going to take the big picture and try to slice it up and say, okay, how would I actually go about doing this? Well, maybe I do this, or this thing or that thing or these five things today, and then in a month I'll do something else. And eventually, if I keep up this pace... In 78 years, I'll finish it all. Okay, let's start the process. What's day one? Oh, you did day one? You did day one, Yom Kippur? Oh, fantastic. And assuming tomorrow you'll do day two and day five and day a thousand and day a million, right? Then you'll be done. On day one, once you make that first step, God is already imagining, so to speak, what's it going to be like in the end if you continue on this trajectory. And therefore, you're considered today as if you, you're completely cleansed. You're that new person 
you start from scratch tomorrow. And what happens at day five or day 10? It gets a little harder, right? The inspiration's not there. You know, we're not in synagogue. We're not having this, this wonderful day, this wonderful Yom Kippur experience. And, you know, say, oh, I'll do, I'll do today's work tomorrow. You know, that happens a lot. You know, hopefully, well, you have the boundaries back again, right? And it's much harder. It's like yeah. we said, it's much harder. And so you do, you, you know, you take the day off and, you know, and after a month later, what if you totally forgot about it? That's, that's unfortunate. So the hope is to keep some of the flame of, some of the inspiration of Yom Kippur uh, throughout the year. Uh, that's the hope, obviously. But even if, even if you lost it, it doesn't matter. Your, your repentance was perfect. Provided that it was genuine, sincere, and you really were going to approach that process, uh, that was your intent on Yom Kippur. You know, my grandfather, um, I told you guys a story once, uh, but in 1938, he was in a yeshiva in Poland, and he was, uh, he was kicked out of Poland uh, along with all the other German nationals because that's what they did. The Poles, that's what the Poles, they were worried all the Germans are spies, and therefore, even though my grandfather was a yeshiva student, and he's not someone who was really a spy, but they kept everyone out. Eventually, he managed to get another three-month visa, and he said he came back to, to the yeshiva Hanukkah time. So three months, uh, uh, two months after, two and a half months after Yom Kippur. And he said, even though it was Hanukkah, it was two and a half months after, he still felt the aura, the feeling, the atmosphere of Yom Kippur a little bit. You know, That's obviously what the goal is. The goal is that Yom Kippur is going to be such a transcendental day, so transformative, that over the long haul, right, it's really going to affect our entire year, and we will indeed follow this path, and we are committed, and we are serious about it, and we are going to take the first step, and we are going to take the second step and the third step and progress along our, our journey. That's the hope. And it's possible. But even if we don't, it doesn't, doesn't matter. The, the, the repentance works uh, totally. Go ahead. On Yom Kippur, part of the prayer is to ask for forgiveness for vows that we've made that we have not completed. Yes. yes. Would that be the commitment, you know, not to repeat these sins? Yeah, so that's uh, um, an, a, a, a great example of, of, uh, of, a, um, of a sin that we don't consider to be that important. Uh, someone makes a vow to do something, and then they don't do it in, in the Jewish uh, literature is very, very severe. Kol Nidre. What does Kol Nidre mean? All the vows. And the entire Kol Nidre prayer is about absolving ourselves of vows. Um, and that's, that's an example. And part of the Kol Nidre is we commit to not do any more vows. But a vow is not just a you know, total commitment. It's saying, oh, well, I'll meet you at the park, and then you don't do it. That's a vow. Well, maybe. It's, no. well... There's a whole book in Talmud called The Book of Vows. And it gets into all the details uh, in an exhaustive manner that will make your head spin. It leaves no stone unturned, I assure you. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it's That's a complex true. question. It lists all possible vows. Anything you can imagine. <laughs> or, obviously, just the, the generalities, the principles right. of the vows. Um, Different kinds of vows. There's a ned, there's a shvu, there's a is, there's a konum, there's a cherem, there's a, I don't know, there's a lot. Different kinds of vows. And if you look at the, at the, at the Kol Nidre, we've mentioned a whole bunch of them. The Kol Nidre um, came about the Inquisition, didn't it? I don't know the history of it. Um, but uh, it's funny because a lot of people, like, 
I would say the vast majority of people have no idea what we're actually saying. Or maybe they do. I don't know. The, English, the ubiquity of English translations now, uh, um, people don't really, um, I don't know. I remember, I remember once um, I was, I must have been 14 years old. And I was in the synagogue in Yom Kippur. And uh, there was this guy who was like, you know, he, he shows up, you know, sometimes. And it was Colnid, right? And I, I, he see like he's like bawling, he's like crying, and I and I'm and I remember thinking like this guy has no idea what we're saying, you know? Maybe he does, maybe he does, but I would assume he doesn't, because uh, yes, it's the atmosphere of Yom Kippur, it's the solemn, you know, tunes of Yom Kippur, but we're essentially talking about all the vows that I did. I'm absolved, you know. It's not really the emo- shouldn't be the emotional high point of Yom Kippur. Uh, but if you have no idea what it means, and it's called Nidre, and it's the beginning of Yom Kippur, you know, or maybe he's emotional the whole Yom Kippur, I don't remember, but that's what I was thinking. So I, I don't know what the history of it is, we can investigate that. Is that true? Was it in the time of the Inquisition? Um, well, there's also another prayer that we say, um, before Rosh Hashanah, we absolve ourselves of all, of all, of all our vows. Um, but that's an example of a sin that we may do and not even realize that we're sinning. Uh, okay, so that's all, all, all fine and dandy. We know what repentance is, and we know how to do it, and we know the implications of repentance. Well, what happens if we sin between man and man? Yom Kippur, repentance, they work very, very well for sins between man and God. If you um, transgressed a sin against your fellow, that doesn't work unless you receive forgiveness from your fellow, from your friend. If you don't, it doesn't matter how much you repent to God. It doesn't matter. You have to repent to your fellow. You have to ask him for forgiveness. Not only that, and this is uh, uh, to Debbie's point, if uh, uh, the words that are used, that the, the Mishnah says that, you, they, that repentance in Kippur doesn't work until you appease your friend. So it doesn't mean to just, you know, to ask a shallow forgiveness, hey, forgive me, forgive me, I'm sorry, you know, that's not, it's not that, it's, it's about really appeasing, it's really making amends, it's really, you know, being square with your fellow. Uh, and of course, it's not easy to do, because whenever you are asking for forgiveness in a sincere way, you're admitting guilt, and uh, that's not necessarily the most comfortable experience. You know, no one wants to admit guilt. Um, and what if the person doesn't forgive you? Well, what if you, you're sincere the person says no? Well, you ask again. What if they say no? Well, you ask again. And uh, Maimonides even says, well, if they never, if they never, if they don't forgive you, you actually bring uh, ten people. You say, I'm asking forgiveness, and, you know, and you're being sincere. But if that person is obstinate, well, that's not, he said, Maimonides says, well, then his sin is worse than yours. Because if someone is really serious about asking forgiveness, it's really cruel and merciless to not grant them their forgiveness. Does it also depend on the degree of the transgression? Yes. And then if his sin is worse than yours for not forgiving you, then you can, if you want, I guess, forgive him for his sin. I mean, is that... Forgive me of my unforgiveness. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, the question is, is his sin against you or not? Yeah. His sin of not forgiving you, that may be an act of cruelty that's not, oh, maybe it is directed at you. <laughs> Interesting. No, I was just wondering. I mean, I guess you can, I guess you can, you can decide to forgive him for his sin of not forgiving you. I mean. That would be, uh, 
yeah, maybe that would be appropriate. But usually, if, if someone really approaches someone else um, with sincerity and wants to make it swear and really wants to uh, apologize and amend their ways, uh, most people will forgive them. Yeah, if you broke somebody's glass window in the discourse, if you killed somebody's loved one, yeah. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, murder, uh, that's one that's of the... That's sinning against God, though, right? Yeah, that's sinning, well, that's sinning against God and man. Uh, and that's, in fact, one of the things that you can never really undo. The Talmud gives a few examples of things you can, you can never undo. And where repentance, Yom Kippur, may not even work for that. Uh, one of these, obviously, you cannot bring the person back to life. Um, I want to finish, because I don't, I don't want to go over time. We've got new rules here. Um, <laughs> thanks, Dan. <laughs> uh, so I want to give a, a quick recap but also a little practical tip that's been a tradition uh, for the Jewish people on Yom Kippur to make a small, a small uh, resolution you know that this is an idea that's not, uh, that's not uh, only in our, in our culture in our, in our society uh, to take something um, as a way of solidifying and cementing your commitment to your tshuva to take some sort of actionable, manageable, and small activity that you are going to commit, a resolution you can make yourself to do for a certain amount of time. It doesn't have to be the whole year. It could be a month or whatever to kind of demonstrate the seriousness of your convictions in your repentance. Um, so that's something that I would encourage everyone to do. So just very quickly recap. Oh, that, that, whatever you decide. I mean, do you, you decide how to best enact your plan of committing to your repentance. Try to find something that, you know, that is appropriate. So if someone, let's say, feels that one of their areas or the most uh, problematic areas of behavior is, uh, I don't know, their behavior with others uh, or their lack of awareness of God or whatever that may be, then take something that's going to actually be oriented towards uh, towards fixing that problem. So I would say if someone's going to, if someone is always snappy at their spouses, you know, or someone uh, is impatient, well then maybe read a book about impatience and commit yourself to do that. That would work. Uh, or, you know, that's something which is directed towards actually fixing the problem. Um, uh, other examples, obviously, we can think of other examples. Just very, very, very quickly, we went through a lot of stuff here. What Yom Kippur is, it's the day we're close to God. It's the day where we don't have the impediments that are normally uh, in our face uh, when it comes uh, to, uh, uh, to connecting to God. It's a day where God even forgave for the most egregious of all sins, uh, the golden calf. He to forgive us as well. This is the day where uh, forgiveness is possible if we seize the opportunity. We don't want to stay, stand behind and stay in our cell for the whole day. We don't want to waste our time by focusing on other trivia, tri- tri- uh, trivialities. Uh, we don't eat because of that. We don't eat because we're like the angels. Uh, we can skip uh, all the normal steps. We can accomplish so much more on this day. Uh, some important uh, pro tips of how to fast a better, what repentance is, how we go about doing it, three steps, regret it, stop doing it, commit to never doing it, and, uh, and, uh, and confess. Uh, and lastly, um, let's take uh, this opportunity uh, to actually actualize, utilize this opportunity that we have. Uh, you know, we don't want to be the ones who are just sitting on the sidelines 
when so much greatness can be accomplished for so comparatively minimal effort. Uh, once again, thank you everyone for coming. Let's have a meaningful Yom Kippur. And before we go, before you go, if you do not have one of these, please one of these for me. give that, uh, give it to Dan, and take a uh, calendar. It's complimentary. I, I got your information. Oh, okay. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you guys next time. Yes. Thanks. And if you don't get my emails, put your email on too, please. Thank you. Oh, yeah, so the service, if you look at the service, it replicates it. Well, if you look at the Musaf prayer, the Musaf prayer reenacts everything that happened in the temple. So that would be as a, as a replication, but yes. That would be as a replacement. Thank you all. Loud, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yes. I think that you have to think about it. You know, think about what you've done. Maybe you know, examine your actions. Uh, but if you if you don't if you don't if you haven't done anything wrong to someone else, you don't need to ask forgiveness for them. You know, if you didn't do anything wrong, then you don't have to ask. Um, and maybe it's a good t- it's a good thing to actually you know think about and contemplate your actions with other people to see maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Uh, but if you didn't, you're good to go. Sorry, go ahead. That's right. I usually do this. This is my usual annual time where I say if I offended anyone or if I, or if I uh, was too snappy with you. So I, please forgive me, but I somehow forgot, I guess. <laughs> well, if you're saying it to me, I... I <laughs> but you didn't offend me with anything. So, yeah. I mean, you know, it's... Uh, yeah. That's right. Ah, I was hoping someone asked the question. I'm going to ask the question. Answer the question. Okay, in a second. Okay, in a second. Ah, very good. Ah, what's the answer? Well, you asked the question. What do you think the answer is? No, go ahead. Do another one. That's <laughs> a good question. Okay, you ready? The answer is like this. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Come again, please. Um, so, even though the Jewish calendar is 354 days, Yom Kippur comes once every 365 days. That's the answer. 355. That's true. That's true. But it still comes, Yom Kippur still comes once every 365 days. Yeah, because we, yes, because no, because we, we balance our calendar to, to match up with the Gregorian calendar. 
So even though our year has 354 days, every 19 years we add seven extra months to accommodate for that. So we have a solar year, even though we have a lunar month. So your Kippur comes once every 365 days. It's a good question. I was hoping someone would ask it. I, I wanted to tell you, I saw a really good movie last night, which I think you would enjoy and, and feel was very appropriate. Um, it reminded me in its own way of some things you had said when you were talking about talking to God okay. uh, a couple of months ago, uh, you know, and, and actually doing it in your car or whatever. It's called The War Room. Have you heard of it? No. Okay. It just, just came out. Uh, I don't see a lot of movies these days, but last night we were at we went went to see it, and um, it's a, long story short, it's a black family uh, that is very prosperous, and uh, but it's not a good marriage uh, and everything, and she encounters this woman that is extremely religious and says God is the end, and it, she says Jesus is the end. I mean, it's 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 a Christian perspective, but the point is the message. Is turning to God, and that's that's how how the battles are won. Uh, you know, that's where the war room is actually a prayer room. Okay, I just think it was very well done. It was very good. It's something I think more people, as the world, I think, and particularly this country, but you know, is turning away from religion. Uh, they're turning to other. The question gods. is how how. Uh, how long of a trend is that going to be? Well, it's, it's a concern, but I think it's a, it's a message that if more people saw it, I think it might slow that trend away from that. I don't know. I would encourage you to see it. it yeah, was, I would, it's I mean, uh, it. called The War Room. It's very good. Nice. Very good. So. Thanks, thanks a lot for that. Yeah, I took a couple. Um, do you have a few Yes, so look at this. Look at that. I got them both here. Oh, okay. Got the email, the website, both websites. Oh, okay. Uh, so just just email just to email it to me, please. Thank you so much. Okay.